You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of Yahweh, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of Yahweh your God. And now Yahweh your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses the servant of Yahweh gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses the servant of Yahweh commanded you to love Yahweh your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan. But to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of Yahweh through Moses. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of Yahweh, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following Yahweh by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against Yahweh? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of Yahweh, that you too must turn away this day from following Yahweh? And if you too rebel against Yahweh today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into Yahweh's land, where Yahweh's tabernacle stands." And take for yourselves a possession among us, only do not rebel against Yahweh or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of Yahweh our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his inequity. Then the people of Reuben 
the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The Mighty One, God, Yahweh. The Mighty One, God, Yahweh. He knows, and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against Yahweh, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following Yahweh. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may Yahweh himself take vengeance. No, we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with Yahweh, the God of Israel? For Yahweh has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in Yahweh. So your children might make our children cease to worship Yahweh. Therefore we said, Let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you, and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of Yahweh in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings, so your children will not say to our children in time to come, You have no portion in Yahweh. And we thought, if this should be said to us, to our descendants in time to come, we should say, Behold, the copy of the altar of Yahweh, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against Yahweh and turn away this day from following Yahweh by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of Yahweh our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel, who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that Yahweh is in our midst, because you have not committed this breach of faith against Yahweh. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of Yahweh. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For, they said, it is a witness between us that Yahweh is God. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 697 of this podcast. Today is Friday, August 25th, 2023, and that was a reading of Joshua chapter 22, where we have the eastern tribes returning home and a bit of a standoff over an altar, which will be called witness, to stand as a witness between those on one side of the Jordan River and those on the other side of the Jordan River. On the east side of the Jordan River, they anticipate and they're thinking ahead down the road a few generations. It's possible your descendants are going to say to our descendants, you have no portion in Yahweh. And we're not good with that. We don't like that idea. We want there to be 
a monument to Yahweh being our God. No, we're not going to offer burnt offerings, grain offerings, any of the rest here. We just want this to be a symbol of our devotion to God so that your descendants will see it, so that our descendants will see it, so that we can get ahead of a potential problem we see down the road. And it's interesting too, because Phineas is the son of Eleazar, the high priest grandson of Aaron. Phineas is the one who is so talked about in the New Testament period. Paul of Tarsus, the apostle Paul, when he's growing up, this is a common thing that Jews who live under Roman occupation talk about Phineas and how Phineas cleansed Israel of the sin of the men who had gone whoring after the gods of the nations and the women of the nations, and they were under judgment. God's wrath was burning against Israel, and Phineas saw an Israelite man who was named take a Midianite woman who was named into his tent to carouse with her. Phineas, incensed, angry, grabs a spear, follows after, and runs the both of them, the man and the woman, through with a spear. And so God ends up not punishing the whole of Israel anymore. And that's that. This is that Phineas. This is that guy leading a coalition of 10 chiefs, 10 leaders of the tribes who are west of the Jordan, who are now settled to go and confront the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh for building this altar, which could be, could be disobedience and the beginning of a rebellion and idolatry, only it's not. It's quite the opposite. It's not idolatry. This is a monument to serve as a reminder so that future generations will be faithful and will remember Yahweh their God. And once that's all explained, then Phineas and the heads of fathers' households of the other tribes who are west of the Jordan see that this is actually okay. And actually, this is a good thing. And they go home and they say, okay, cool. Great. I paraphrase, but that's fine. Thanks. Just checking. But appreciate that this has the potential to be a fight, a battle, a war within Israel. This has the potential to be a civil war already. And when things are that testy, that tense, it's not hard to see why the men of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh could see in a few generations, or even one generation down the road, the descendants of the tribes on the west side of the Jordan saying to those on the east side of the Jordan, yeah, you stay over there. You don't know God. You don't worship God. No, we don't know you. Yeah, stay on your side of the river. It's not hard to think forward and project forward how this kind of testiness, after having just settled the land and allotted it to each of the tribes, this kind of testiness is the beginning of cracks forming in Israel. It's not the end, but this is a sign of things to come. But let's take a step back and think about what Joshua tells to the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites. You have kept all that Moses, the servant of Yahweh, commanded you. 
You obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. You have fulfilled your oath. All of the other tribes are now settled in their inheritance. Now Yahweh has given rest to your brothers, verse 4, as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies. So in other words, the campaign is over. We did it. Thank you for your service. That'll be all. But then there's the admonition. Be careful. Be very careful to observe the commandment and the law Yahweh commanded you. The law that Moses, the servant of Yahweh, commanded you to love Yahweh, your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Also, go back to your tents, verse 8, with much wealth, with very much livestock, silver, gold, bronze, iron, much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. This is right before the conflict and the upset over the altar. But let's think about it for a moment, that there is spoil To the victor go the spoils. There are precious metals, valuable metals for making tools and weapons. There are clothing articles. There's livestock. So what we have here is currency. We have raw materials for making things that will be helpful in securing the land, providing and protecting. We also have clothing, much clothing. Well, that's handy. Much clothing for you, your wives, your children. That's part of the spoils. Much livestock. Yeah, you guys are going to eat well. You will be in good shape. Go home with the spoils. Bring home that bacon. In our day, in my lifetime, growing up, coming of age, as the war on terror was seeing friends and family enlist and go off to Iraq and Afghanistan, one of the very curious things that I still scratch my head about to this day is this objection to, say, for instance, our having gone into Iraq. Because as the claim went, we, we just wanted the oil. We were just there for the oil. Well, okay, wait a second, though. If that's not the stated reason, and there was a different reason, and there were legitimate reasons, even if you don't think they were adequate reasons, there were legitimate complaints about Saddam Hussein and the kind of character he was, and the things he was threatening to do, the things he had done and was doing, if we went in, it was appropriate for us to extract spoils. That's what you do. That's how war goes. It's a relatively modern notion, I I would say an anti-American notion, that does not bear up. This is not uniformly applied to people, either past or present, that we say, if you win a war, you get the spoils. You get the military victory, and you also will get the material benefit. And that's it's going to be helpful to recoup your losses. And oh, by the way, why did you go off to war in the first place? If you didn't have a pretext, and you can't ever have a just pretext for making war, either to defend or to retaliate for a hostile action or a hostile threat, well, then that's the issue, and the spoils are beside the point. But if you have a just reason, It doesn't become an invalid reason, and you're not supposed to just forget about it because there were spoils. What else are you going to do? You're just going to leave this stuff to rot? You make war against the enemy. You defeat them. There's a whole bunch of stuff left in the way of riches, food, clothing. You're just going to leave it? That's not responsible. What if it was an expensive war? You just take the hit. You just take the loss. 
And the rest of the world is supposed to say, yeah, that'll teach you. No, that's not reasonable. So here we see spoils. We see not just land is taken through war and resettled by people, but that this is a obedience to God's command and not just the land, not just the cities, not just the pasture lands, but also the precious metals, the foodstuffs, and clothing articles are distributed. And that's appropriate. Those who object are either being naive or they have an agenda to try and undermine the credibility. They've been filled with self-loathing, perhaps if they are Americans and they just hate on their own country. They were taught to, they were indoctrinated in self-loathing of a national character, of a civilizational character. And you can't support that from the biblical text on these grounds. To make war is not inherently a just or an unjust action. It can be just and it can be unjust. To make war and to win a war and to take the spoils, that's not an inherently corrupt thing. And it doesn't prove that that was your whole reason from the beginning was just to take spoils. How many of us have any familiarity with just war theory? Very few. Few to none, I would say. In part because the current social imaginary gave way to the vision of the internationalists to bring about world peace, to declare aggressive war-making and territorial expansion illegal according to international law, and they can make that claim. That doesn't mean that they're right. It's arbitrary because they wanted to bring an end to all international war-making unless it was their idea. That doesn't mean that retroactively you look back on the biblical text, say, for instance, in the book of Joshua, and have some kind of a moral superiority to God's people here, certainly not to God himself, but then that's what we're really up against. If God commanded this and you say, oh no, that's evil, what are you saying about God? That he commanded in some places what he commanded or that he permitted what he permitted. Are you more righteous than God? Are you holier than God? Are you wiser than God? No, indeed. Part of the reason why it's important for us to appreciate that though is in a practical way, if we accept the premise that it's wrong to come into a territory, make war, drive out the inhabitants of that land, and settle after them. Essentially, what we are rejecting and repudiating is the colonization of the Americas over the last five centuries. The colonization by European powers in particular, Spain, England, France, the Dutch. We are basically saying that for Europeans to have come into, say, North America and to have settled what is now the United States was evil. It was bad. It was a bad choice. It was a bad decision. And we should feel bad because we are bad. If we're living on stolen land, as it said, then basically our country has no legitimate basis for existing in the first place. And there are people who talk like that, who are very wealthy, they're very well established, they say these kinds of things, but what is the end goal? What is the object? Say, for instance, the owners of Ben and Jerry's, who will say that America was built on stolen land, we should give it back. But then when it's pointed out that their company's headquarters 
is built on some of this Native American land and they can put their money where their mouth is. They could be the first ones to give it back and move back to wherever their ancestors came to the new world from originally. Crickets. Why is that? Well, because we're here now. And oh, by the way, if you really know your history, you know that even the indigenous peoples who were here before Christopher Columbus and Europeans in the last five centuries, the indigenous peoples, they came from somewhere as well. They weren't always here. They maybe have a very old claim to this land, but within tribes, there were different tribes of Native American indigenous peoples who displaced one another. They made war against one another. It's rare for there to be a part of either North or Central or South America where the same ethnic group, the same tribe, the same people, the same nation was there forever and never displaced anybody else who'd been there previous. That's a very rare thing. So even with regards to the Native Americans, they, if they settled on land that had belonged to some other tribe that they made war against and they displaced or they absorbed, they conquered, they subjugated, they enslaved, even the Native American tribes followed this general principle that when there's a clash of civilization, a clash of ways of life, a competing claim on the land based on whatever, the one who wins the battle or wins the war ends up dividing up the spoils. But then practically, again, when it comes to us, is this one of the reasons why we don't have more land opened up for development, zoned for residential, for instance, for example? Is this one of the reasons why people of a certain political persuasion, a certain philosophical persuasion, are reluctant to develop natural resources or to permit others to develop natural resources and to build homes for people to live in? I would say yes. I would say this is a factor and that this is not all there is to it, but it's of a piece with claims made on the left in particular about climate change, which insist we should curtail mankind's impact on the environment, not just putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, not just burning fossil fuels, but building homes, living in them, planting crops, raising livestock, growing food, using water to grow food, using water to water our lawns, or fill our swimming pools. They don't stop with just saying, we should give the land back, but then they're not going to be the first to do so. No, no. They go on to regulate the construction of new homes and office buildings in such a way as is guaranteed to make them more expensive, less available, to suppress the supply. And therefore, since demand isn't going down when you have the same number of people or a growing number of people competing for houses, to make sure that the prices go up and up and up. When the prices go up and up and you already own property, but you're not willing to just give that property back to indigenous peoples, the descendants of indigenous peoples who lived in that area centuries ago, it points to the strong possibility that you're constraining the supply of available housing for people who don't own a home so that you maintain or increase the value of your properties. Turn your attention with me to Commodore Vanderbilt over at Not To Be in a write-up from just yesterday, 
Home prices are getting so high that builders are starting to build smaller homes so people can afford them, but the prices are still bonkers. That's the headline. And there's an embedded tweet from the Wall Street Journal with the caption, for many Americans, home ownership may be attainable only if they give up a dining room. The preview text says, goodbye bathtub and living room. America's homes are shrinking. For many Americans, home ownership may be attainable only if they give up a dining room. Amy Somensky replies, does anyone really need a dining room? The short answer is, yeah. For instance, families who have eight kids and they're expecting their ninth and they do schoolwork in their dining room, for instance. That would be our family's situation. Also, we want to have people over to enjoy a meal with us on occasion. And a dining room is very convenient to get everybody sat down and breaking bread and having conversation. The holidays also tend to be very favorably disposed towards dining rooms where you can put the turkey on Thanksgiving or Christmas Day in the middle of the table, put all the side dishes out there for everybody to pick at, serve themselves, serve one another. Yeah, dining rooms are kind of nice to have. Also, a great place to play board games. That's where we play on the dining room table. But here's a little excerpt from the Wall Street Journal article. And I quote, home prices are near record highs, frustrating millions of potential buyers who feel priced out of the housing market. Uh, Wait, wait, wait. sorry. We don't just feel priced out of the housing market. We are priced out of the housing market due to the rate of inflation, the cost of living, the availability of homes. Yeah, we are priced out of the housing market. It's not that we feel like it. We are priced out of the housing market. Continuing on. Home builders are having to find ways to make their product more affordable to increase their pool of customers. Shrinking the size of a new single-family home is an increasingly popular way to do it. Smaller homes can help cost-constrained buyers facing high mortgage rates, which again, that's something that's being set well above my pay grade. I'm not pricing myself out of the market. When the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, that's not me doing it. They're trying to combat inflation caused by printing money and spending money and sending money overseas to countries like Ukraine when we have people increasingly hard-pressed to keep the lights on, buy groceries here. Here's another idea. What you could do is you could constrict the spending of the U.S. federal government. You could try that. That would help to reduce inflation. Stop spending the taxpayers' money against their wishes, against their interests, Consider this. In 1970, the average home size in the U.S. was 1,500 square feet. Over the past five years, the average unit size for new housing starts has decreased 10% to 2,420 square feet. Commodore Vanderbilt says that's enormous, but I would say that's not enormous when you have eight kids with a ninth on the way. The house we rent right now in Greeley, Colorado is about that size and we make it work, but homeschooling, having bookshelves, my wife having her sewing business, me having an office so that I can do work remotely from home, programming, all of our space is used and we would definitely make use of more space, but to buy a home this size or bigger, it's cost prohibitive. We are priced out of the market, plain and simple. Here's another quote from the Wall Street Journal article. 
In December, Brad and Julie Redman downsized from their more than 7,000-square-foot custom-built home to a 3,400-square-foot semi-custom model in Westfield, Indiana, after their children left home. Despite the smaller house and yard in a denser neighborhood, the couple is happy with the decision. They gave up a formal dining area when they moved, but their new eating area easily converts to space for entertaining guests. Quote, we can use the same space for more than one thing, Julie Redmond said. Now, again, let's just pause to reflect on what the approximate age of this couple is in Indiana. Their children have all grown up and moved out. It's just them. They are downsizing from a 7,000 square foot custom built home to a 3,400 square foot home. They have a thousand square feet more and they're one generation older than my wife and I and no children living at home. 3,400 square feet and they don't have room for a formal dining room. But see, here's the problem in part. And this came out actually with the Republican primary debates on Fox News this week. There was this comment made by Mike Pence, who is very gray-haired, Former Vice President Mike Pence took a pot shot at Vivek Ramaswamy and, to a lesser extent, Ron DeSantis for being too young to be president. Vivek Ramaswamy was born the year before I was born. He's a tech entrepreneur. He is young, but he's old enough according to the Constitution. And just because everybody else is old, that doesn't mean that Vivek is too young. But what's interesting is when you hear that older generation talk about where we're at politically right now, you get the impression that there's just a little straightening up needed. Not like this is a disaster. And why I think that's the case is because the people who are giving the money to the campaigns for these career politicians who are in the baby boomer generation, they're not in a panic. They found ways to shelter their savings and their investments. They found ways to diversify their portfolios. They're not worried about being homeless. They're just going to downgrade now that their children have all grown up and moved out. They're going to downgrade from a 7,000 square foot custom built home to a 3,400 square foot semi-custom home. Whereas my generation is looking at spending a significant portion of our income, if not most of our income, on rent. And there's no end in sight to renting someone else's home. And they clearly, if they have an extra to rent out, they clearly have more than one home. At least they have two. Millennials like myself, who don't happen to be independently wealthy because they were successful tech entrepreneurs. Millennials like myself, who decided to get married, young, have a family, work hard, do more of a blue-collar on-the-job training route when it comes to their career. Millennials like me actually do wonder what would happen if utilities costs kept going up and up, groceries costs kept going up and up, and the rent kept going up and up. What would we do? Would we have to move out of a home that's 2,400 square feet into a home that's 1,500 square feet and try and fit all the homeschooling and the work from home and the sewing business or else give it away, auction it off. That's the difference between how the baby boomers are doing and how the millennials are doing. And yet 
why this pertains to Joshua chapter 22, in part, in my mind, is that all of these tribes have an allotment. The promise is not just land, although that's awesome. How great would it be if every American household had land, owned land? How great would it be if every American household could afford to build a home that they themselves would live in and own and maintain and pass on to future generations? How great would that be? How great would it be if every household in America had livestock and plenty of clothing and raw materials to make tools with? How great would that be? You talk about a study in contrast with where we're at right now, where there is so much housing insecurity, there is so much income insecurity, there is so much uncertainty as to prospects, politically, socially, economically. I bring up this housing business in relation to Joshua chapter 22 because it was a priority to God. It was a blessing from God that these tribes each had their own land, their own cities, their own space. We're talking property here. We're talking property rights. And that is of a piece with being free and independent. There's no getting around that. And yet I see a write-up from three days ago in Bloomberg News. Youth activists experience a mental toll from the climate crisis. Here's a quote. I think so many of us have had to forfeit our youth because we feel an obligation to do this. A lot of us have missed out on things that others have had because we've made this choice. Or have we made this choice? Because many people don't think it's a choice, especially with the gravity of the situation. End quote. The mental health impacts of the climate crisis and the toll on young activists keeps Tori Tsui up at night. Her first book, It's Not Just You, came out in July, as told to Olivia Rudgard. We have young people being indoctrinated, brainwashed by the public schools, by higher education, by the corporate news media, by leftists in the government and leftist activists, brainwashed into forfeiting their future, their capacity to be free, to make decisions for themselves, to work, to earn, to get married, to have children, to raise a family, to own a home, to own their own vehicle to enjoy life. We have mountebanks, we have fraudsters, we have charlatans and snake oil salesmen who have banded together to disenfranchise and to rob young people of all enjoyment of life and even the capacity to sleep at night. And this is part of the reason why housing is so unaffordable for my family. Now, it's my business that housing is so unaffordable, but it's not just my business. It's not just my problem, and it's not all up to me how we get this figured out, but it definitely needs to be figured out. The censorship of conservatives who push back on the climate hysteria is part, a major part of why housing and transportation and energy and food and clothing and everything else is becoming cost prohibitive The censorship of the second who would come to examine the first estate is case is part of how these liars, these thieves, these villains are stealing from you and me. They lie to us. They give us something called the 
Inflation Reduction Act, which was false advertising. Even just the name of it was a lie. It wasn't supposed to reduce inflation at all. It was supposed to actually combat climate change, so-called. So they said, but really it was a wealth redistribution scheme. And it wasn't to take away from the rich and give to the poor. It was to extract wealth from the economy and to force consumers to buy more expensive versions of products that were previously in recent years abundant and inexpensive because this is all about supply and demand. For that matter too, when those who would purchase are constrained in their choices because all of the competitors now must adhere to this new regulation supposedly to combat climate change, but really just to give a leg up on whoever was already positioned to deliver on those criteria, what we have is lawfare. We have legal plunder. That's what Frederick Bastiat would call it. That young people are trained in the public schools not to learn how to read and write and think critically and love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, not to love their neighbor as themselves when they're trained to be activists for the left and even professing Christian parents just keep on sending year after year their young people into those public schools so that they maintain their comfortable lifestyle with a 7,000 square foot house right up until their kids move out and then, oh, well, yeah, I guess we'll downgrade to a 3,400 square foot house. And we have so many activities. We have so many rooms that are for her crafts and my billiards and a man cave to watch football for me, plus her own movie theater for her to watch chick flicks with her gal pals. We don't have room for a dining room. That's how we get to where we're at right now. It's selfishness. It is the older generations, the baby boomers in particular, who prioritized serving themselves over leaving an inheritance for their children's children. And the young people right now who are old enough to be activists in a real deep and abiding way, who are so troubled, who are suicidal and self-harming and self-destructive, and they've given up on marriage and having kids and working and earning and owning a home and owning their own vehicle, those young people are my generation. And when they're not my generation, they're the next generation down, Gen Z, or the next generation down, Gen Alpha. And even if they're not my generation, they're my concern and they should be your concern too. Even if it's not all up to you and me, it is definitely our responsibility and it does affect us that these youth activists trained up, brainwashed to do the bidding of extraordinarily wealthy billionaires with God complexes who want to reshape the world in their image. These youth activists brainwashed into being little Greta Thunbergs, dropping out of school, plotting to blow up oil pipelines, set wildfires. These youth activists, they are our responsibility. If all we have is pity, if all we do is laugh at them, if all we do is shake our heads and carry on, shame on us. And yet, even as I see this Bloomberg news write up at MSN.com on the same landing page where they're bringing in and aggregating news from all over the internet, they also have a piece up from the Daily Digest. A look at Earth in 2050 if climate change isn't stopped. This is a story by Zaleb.es. I can't imagine that's anybody's real name. A look at Earth in 2050 shows real images of places like London, Paradise Island in the Bahamas, 
Dubai, Seville, Spain, Antwerp, Belgium, Melbourne, Australia, Bordeaux, France, all underwater. And we wonder why it is that these kids are having mental health problems, why they're suicidal, why they're not sleeping at night, why they're anxious, why they're harming themselves, why they're overwhelming emergency rooms. We wonder, we show them manipulated images, which are about as trustworthy as the computer models that are given junk data with junk calculations to spit out junk predictions to ram through before any of us are the wiser while the conservatives are muzzled and silenced online initiatives of the super wealthy to institute global communism with themselves, of course, overseeing it all for the people. They're megalomaniacs. These are megalomaniacs who are not original. They're not new. This is just a different tactic, but it's nothing new. It's the aspiration for global dominance. These are conquerors. These are would-be emperors. They have a God complex and they don't care about the mental health of the teenagers and the 20-somethings any more than they care about the well-being of tens of millions of aborted infants. This is the logical extension. It's contempt for those who are younger or a willingness to cannibalize their prospects to keep oneself comfortable, amused, affirmed, firmly in power, wealthy, well-fed, infinitely entertained, empowered. These guys, these gals will rue the day. There will come judgment. You know, what's telling is that not a single insurance carrier is refusing to insure properties that are expensive, that are located on the coasts. The very, very wealthy, they just happen to still be buying properties on the coasts. Even as they fly around giving speeches for high dollar figures, palling around with uh, super wealthy who fund these leftist activists, they just happen to still own beachfront property, even though supposedly their beachfront properties are going to be underwater, if not tomorrow by the year 2050. That's a curious thing. They sure do spend quite a lot of money to buy property on the coasts for believing that the coasts are all going to be underwater in the coming years and decades. Now, it's a curious thing. If we are all sold on this idea of climate change destroying the livability of the coasts, it's a very curious thing that the people who most loudly trumpet the need to give all our political power, all of our wealth over to them, keep on buying and building on the coasts. It's strange, right? It's just very, very odd. And it's almost like when adults sometimes will tell children as they're enjoying some treat, oh, no, you wouldn't like it. It's gross. Yeah, no. No, I don't think you would like it. All the while, they're just chowing down. It's not gross. (laughs) It's not gross. You're eating it because it's delicious and you want more for yourself. It's not original. You're just selfish and dishonest. It's all there is to it. But there's hope. (laughs) We don't have to be dishonest and we don't have to be selfish. And actually, here's the pro tip. If we are honest, if we just fess up, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness for that matter as well. There's a lot more joy to be had not being selfish. It's a lonely thing to be selfish. 
At the end of selfishness, it's just you by yourself. But we were created to love God and to enjoy him forever. We were created to live in community with others who are image bearers. And if you decline to be selfish and choose instead to love your neighbor as yourself, well, then what you find is you are blessed. You are blessed. You are not alone. And yet some of what we might be honest about is tough stuff. And it's not always a bad thing to just say, hey, things are not going so good. (laughs) Things are not going so good. I'm going to play for you a clip of a gal from Canada explaining that things are not going so good. Things in the young adult life, trying to make ends meet, trying to buy the necessities of life right now, they're not not so good. They're not going so well in Canada. Here it is, thanks to Commodore Vanderbilt over at Not The Bee and his embed of Davy Jones, a tweet from Davy Jones, August 14th. Listen to cut one and then I'll have some thoughts. Okay, so I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And for those of you who don't know, Canada has like a serious f***ed up inflation problem right now. I just got back from doing groceries and I have $70 worth of groceries on my table right now. And I genuinely don't even know what I purchased that made it to $70. I had a f***ing mini breakdown to my parents the other week. And I started like crying, like tears. They came in because I was doing a budget and they were like, how is it? And I was like, uh, 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 uh. Tears. I'm working like three jobs right now. Like I got out of university like last year in December and I have been fucking grinding it out ever since just because the cost of living and I'm not even really saving that. I'm not saving anything really, but the cost of living is outrageous in Canada. And it's just so, I was telling my parents, like, it's just so frustrating that, like, you do all the right things, you go to university and then you come out, you get a job, whatever, and you can barely fucking afford rent. I talk about it with my friends all the time, but we're just sticking together right now because it's brutal. And that is sad. That is sad. That's the caption below her video. Cost of living in Canada right now is so sad. Now, keep in mind, too, what this young gal, she looks to be maybe in her mid-20s, if I had to guess, maybe late 20s. Keep in mind what it is that she says is entailed in having done all the right things, having done what you're supposed to do, what they were told to do, what her generation was told to do, what my generation was told to do here in the U.S. She stayed in school, went off to college, got the degree, got after it, worked hard, picked up a second job, picked up a third job. It's not enough. Why is that? Because sometimes it's not about how hard you're working. Sometimes it's not about checking all the right boxes Personally, sometimes there are macroeconomic barriers. There are roadblocks put up for you as you would attempt to afford the necessities of life, shelter, food, clothing, transportation. Sometimes there are barriers because artificial scarcity is introduced of those necessities because the person who makes the necessities Maybe as a friend with the government who works in setting regulations and ensuring compliance, writing the laws, executing the laws, judging the laws. Maybe their competitors were not able to keep up with regulation. Also, oh, by the way, 
taxes factor in here. When there's a cost to regulation and there's a cost for the taxation to companies, what do companies do? They pass along those added costs to the consumer. That is you. So everybody on the left who talks about the rich paying their fair share, corporations paying their fair share, do you know what happens when you raise taxes and increase the regulatory burden on corporations? They pass along those costs to you. So you're thinking, yeah, that's right. Get them. Yeah, they should have to do better and try harder and they should be paying their fair share. You're paying it. (laughs) Particularly if they have something like a monopoly, if they have a corner on the market. If they don't have a lot of competition because they helped to pass regulation on their industry and they, before the regulation was enacted, positioned themselves to be able to keep up with regulation and their competitors didn't, well, then guess whose stock price goes up? Guess who is able to still meet their commitments, make the deliveries, while all the other offerings are stalled during renovations, upgrades, retrofits to the equipment to keep up with new rules. This is why we need to have a grasp of individual liberty, free market principles, how an economy is supposed to function. This is why we need to have equal weights and measures because guess what? There's a partiality that drives a lot of these regulatory decisions. And when politicians can take bribes or they can invest heavily in corporations, which they are also going to be legislating regarding when they have insider trading information and they can get ahead of the rest of the market, they have every incentive to pick the winners and the losers instead of doing justice. This gal's name is Milena Moran. She says, literally half my paycheck goes to groceries alone. Hashtag Canada, hashtag inflation, hashtag cost of living. Jen Chlan has a tweet out, August 13th. It's a great place to live, honestly. The cost of basic groceries, etc. in Canada has risen to where many people cannot afford to buy the groceries they were able to buy a few years ago. What I want to know is where all the increased revenue from inflated food prices is going. That's her question. That's her comment. Here's the answer. And this is why you have to be careful about being a low information voter when candidates and bureaucrats and politicians promise you the sun, the moon, and the stars, as well as assuring you that somebody else is going to have to pay for it. Where that increased revenue goes is the increased costs incurred by those corporations. Taxes are a cost. The raw materials that go into finished products are a cost. The energy that it takes to transport raw materials to a factory, to a plant, the energy that it takes to process and convert raw materials into finished products, whether food or some other thing, the energy that it costs to transport from a factory or a plant to the marketplace where you are going to transport yourself and then buy and transport the materials, the goods, the foods, home, all that energy is where the increased revenue is going. The inflated food prices are a result of 
artificial constraint of supply relative demand, as well as artificial increase of the supply of money from politicians who want the easy button. Inflation is a hidden tax. It's a secret tax. If politicians told you up front when you voted for them that they were just going to print so much money that it effectively in the course of four or five years would be an additional 20% possibly in taxes, reducing your spending power by that much. If they were to tell you that on the front end, you wouldn't vote for them. But if they tell you we won't raise taxes, technically that's the fine print, but we're just going to print the money. And the next thing you know, everything, literally everything is more expensive and more scarce and of a worse quality and in less variety. That's why. That's what's going on there. Lockdowns, social distancing, mask mandates. You were so used to, most of you Americans and Canadians, you were so, so used to an abundant supply of goods and foods and the so-called experts got on TV and they told you, you're going to die. Everybody you love is going to die. Your way of life is going to come to an end if you don't let us destroy the global economy, destroy your national economy, destroy your state's economy. Responsible governing officials as a minister of God said, no, we're not going to do that to our people. We're not going to lock them in their houses and arrest them if they go to the park with their kids. We're not going to prevent them from going to work to provide for their families. We're not going to stop them from going to church. We're not going to stop them from going to a wedding or a funeral or a baby shower. No, we're not doing that. Those governing officials were acting as a faithful minister of God to reward those who do what is good. And yes, to punish those who do what is evil would be appropriate in this case, but that's a hard task. That's a difficult thing because those who have done what is evil just happen to be in many cases, very wealthy, very powerful. But this isn't over, obviously. Canada spent $624.2 billion on COVID-19 pandemic. Here's a piece from 2020, April 15th. Opinion, published at theglobeandmail.com. Opinion, the Bank of Canada's vast experiment in printing money. And let's just stop right there. (laughs) Say no more. The central bank has embarked on a course that is as controversial as it is unprecedented. That's not nearly so unprecedented. It's pretty well precedented. We've seen what this does to economies. It collapses them. It makes poor people poorer. It makes people who have a sufficient amount to have worked, earned, saved, invested wisely, all of a sudden poor people. Whereas before they were middle class, now they're poor. Very often, the rich get richer because they've diversified. They've invested in offshore accounts, and they're set. But the middle class are not so lucky. They get made poorer. The poor get even poorer still than they were before. CBC.Canada. No need to worry about a deficit when the government can print money, say some economists. Hmm. Those economists are charlatans. You should have known that. Another piece from CBC Radio. Trudeau government won't say who got billions of dollars in aid. 
When Justin Trudeau ran for office in 2015, he promised Canadians a more open and transparent government. However, an investigation by CBC News reveals the Trudeau government hasn't been entirely transparent about where billions of dollars in pandemic aid has gone. Here's another piece from cbc.ca. The cost to run the federal government is up $151 billion a year on Trudeau's watch. That's quite a lot of increase. But it's amazing when you are the person who can declare an emergency and also because it's an emergency, you can just do whatever you want, spend whatever you want, not tell people because supposedly it's a matter of national security or again, see also it's an emergency. No time to answer stupid questions. Get out of my way or I'll lock you up. Hmm. It's amazing. It's amazing how consistently convenient it is to be the one who could declare a crisis and milk that crisis for all it's worth. This is our problem here in the U.S. as well with the Democrats. No two ways about it. Someone very similar to Justin Trudeau, Canada's prime minister, is a certain Gavin Newsom, governor of the state of California. Don't be surprised if he ends up running for president as a Democrat, particularly if Joe Biden is quietly removed in the next year. Gavin Newsom is arguably the most dangerous Democrat in the country right now, excepting former President Barack Obama, I would say. He's very sharp. He's very clever. He thinks on his feet. He has a lot of stats, quick at the command to throw at anybody who would question him or debate him or oppose him. But a bit of reporting by Carissa Moore over at Travel Fiber, as I found it on MSN.com, says California is in trouble. Here's what the sudden drop in population means for the state. The state of California has seen a rapid decline in its population, with more than 600,000 residents packing their bags and relocating within the last three years. The Golden State that people once flocked to has now become an area Everyone is fleeing from sky-high taxes, soaring crime rates, and a floundering economy are just a few reasons why California is in big trouble. Four out of 10 Californians have considered leaving in favor of starting fresh elsewhere, according to a recent poll. According to Carissa Moore, California needs to focus on population stability, not growth. Stabilizing the economy must be the first order of business to help California survive the changing times. Let me tell you what that would require. It would require disempowering the likes of Gavin Newsom and the platform of the Democratic Party in California. If you want to stabilize the state of California, stop doing the stupid things that are making over half a million people leave your state in recent years. Stop incentivizing criminal behavior by failing to, refusing to punish it. Stop defunding the police. Stop normalizing drug abuse. Stop being a dumping ground for illegal immigration. Stop promoting homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, gender mutilation surgery for children. Stop trying to threaten parents that you're going to take their children away from them if they stand up to the local public schools who are corrupting their children. Stop removing school board members 
when the school board members say, you know, we're not so sure about Gavin Newsom's favorite curriculum for our school. You could try lowering taxes, but then that would also require your state's government spending less on behalf of the people. And by the way, remember, the government does not generate income. They extract wealth from the broader economy. They only have money when they A, print it, thereby devaluing your currency that you have, your wages, your spending power, or on the other hand, when they take your dollars from you in taxes. They don't produce anything. It's one thing if you can say, hey, look at how much better things are because we've regulated and we've taxed. When the cost of everything goes up and everybody's general safety and well-being goes down, when people are leaving your state, on average, 200000 a year in the last three years, maybe the problem is not that the Democrats in California don't have enough power, aren't spending enough money. Maybe the problem is that they have had far too much power for far too long, and they've been spending far too much money that actually would be better spent along the lines of what Adam Smith articulated in The Wealth of Nations. When you take money out of the economy, even if you're taxing the wealthy and corporations, what are you also doing? You are removing the money that otherwise would be in circulation to grow businesses, hire employees, promote employees, innovate, try new things. When there's no cushion, what do companies do? When there's high variability in what the regulatory environment might look like, what the outlook is going to be, when there's a lot of instability and uncertainty in the market, what do corporations do? They tend not to innovate. If you force them to innovate anyways, and then they have a failed product because they really weren't able to pull it off, but they couldn't tell you no, because you're the government after all, what we're dealing with is really not a free country and free men and women. We're not dealing with a free market. We're not dealing with free anything. That's totalitarian. That's socialistic. That's communistic. What's happening to an otherwise rich, beautiful, and abundant with natural resources state is it's being made a case study, America style, of what happens when you go socialistic, when you go communistic and totalitarian. And oh, by the way, for those who have migrated from California to other states, and you are always getting a hard time being from California, why don't you just go back where you came from? Let me just say, there are decent people who are from California, and they left California because they hate what's been done to their state, and they don't see it changing anytime soon. They didn't make it that way. They would change it if they could, but they're not allowed to. A combination of very stupid people who won't be persuaded, but they can be bought, and also very corrupt people who are ruthless, who will stop at nothing to silence all opposition, to bully and bulldoze, bribe, and malign. Anyone who cross-examines them comes up with a better idea. That combination is why California is the way that it is. The people who are leaving should not be assumed to be a bad influence where they're going to end up, where they're going to. But that said, a warning to the California people who leave the state of California to go somewhere else. When you go somewhere else that's better, go into the situation expecting that 
you're not going to be used to how they do things in the place you go to. You might have to moderate some of your tendencies, some of your expectations. That's what it means that your state that you left was doing so poorly is that the approach to life, the general philosophy of life in your state is broken. And if you take that philosophy of life and that way of deciding who you're going to vote for, who you're going to support, who you're going to oppose, if it's perfect just the way that it is, well, then it is fair for the natives wherever you end up to ask, how are we not going to end up just like the state you moved here from? That's fair. It's incumbent on the people leaving states like California to learn from the mistakes of the state of California and to have sound principles moving forward. Repent. Don't just leave the state and take the state with you in your heart like a seed. Leave the state and swear off the crazy approach, the irresponsible approach to life that caused your beautiful home state of California so much trouble in the first place. And warn people where you're going. Be the most conservative person in the room where you're going to and warn people about the effects of overregulation and excessive taxation and the printing of money to solve every problem that politicians don't want to be honest with the voters about when they have a large price tag, but don't want to out and out tell you you're going to be paying for it. Let's talk about the debate, though. The debate that needs to be had and the toes that need to be stepped on if there's going to be meaningful reform. And there's need for reform. Just because the donor class is doing all right, they're coming out all right, making their money, keeping their money, growing their businesses, not at all concerned about housing, clothing, food, transportation. Ryan Saavedra over at the Daily Wire published a piece the day before yesterday, Fox News slammed over insane restrictions for covering presidential debate. Totally crazy. Here, I will pay a little bit of your attention and my attention, if you'll stay with me, to give you some commentary in cut two of Ben Shapiro explaining Fox News being very restrictive on how much in the way of material other outlets can share from the first GOP debate hosted by Fox News at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library this week. Here it is. Cut to Ben Shapiro. Take a listen. So Fox News actually sent out, believe it or not, a debate guide for the media to cover this thing. They're out of their minds. They're out of their minds. I got to point this out. Okay, so here is what they say. This is nuts. Okay, they say that during the seven-day period, Described during the debate below, during the the time below, meaning seven days from the date of the debate and on. No media outlet can air more than a total of three minutes of excerpts from the debate in any one program, including video and audio. They're out of their minds. That's totally crazy. They're treating this like a football game or like a baseball game, which is nuts. Okay, that's nuts. This is newsworthy material involving the presidential candidates, the people who are going to represent you at the top levels of American government. And Fox News is saying that you're not allowed to hear from them unless you watch the debate live or unless you're watching Fox News. That's totally crazy. That's totally crazy. It means that when people like me recap the debate and explain to you what happened in the debate last night, Fox News is now threatening to sue people like me if I play you four minutes 
of the debate tomorrow, despite the fact that my show would bring them an extraordinary number of people who are who are viewers and listeners to them to take a look at their next debate. Like, how the hell is anybody supposed to actually figure out what happened in the debate unless they watched the thing live? I understand they're now trying to telescope all viewership on Fox News to the debate itself, but good luck with this. I mean, just really ridiculous, ridiculous stuff. They say that you can only use the debate or excerpts thereof on the internet by way of the embed video function at foxnews.com video. So um, that this is, that's totally wild stuff. Between the RNC's handling of this debate and Fox News' handling of this debate, I gotta tell you, I am, I'm just, I'm dumbfounded. You wish to, you wish to actively let people know that your debate is important and you're doing so by blacking it out, essentially, from any place that is not Fox News Live. That is, that is a wild thing to do. Quite right. Very true. It is. <clears throat> it is. And I'll go a step farther. I think that what needs to probably happen is the Daily Wire should host a presidential debate. I don't know if they would be up for that, but boy, howdy. I would be up for watching it. I would love to see a debate moderated by The Daily Wire, broadcast, produced by The Daily Wire. I would love to see that with a focus on substance, with a focus on the content of character for the men who want to be president and Nikki Haley, of course, wants to be president. How about The Blaze? As another option. Why not? I would agree. This is highly regrettable that Fox News is restricting and controlling access to what these candidates are actually proposing, what they're actually for, who they actually are, like they are. They did it during the debate, and I did watch live with my family. I didn't know that there was going to be so much restriction, but now that I do know, I'm glad we watched it live. And then I was able to watch Trump's interview with Tucker Carlson this morning. More on that in a minute. But the GOP and more specifically, RNC leadership is out of touch. Fox News is out of touch. And when I say they're out of touch, what I mean is I get the strong impression that they don't really actually have the best of intentions. They probably think they're being very clever, but I feel like they should not have nearly so much of a corner on the market as to how conservatism expresses itself in this country. They have a very limited scope for their conservatism. And it feels as though the donor class, the very wealthy, the very well-connected already, the establishment types are not really doing justice. They're not really looking out for the people that they want to rule over, and they are ruling over. Why that's concerning is we're in a bad spot right now, and the people who are most in touch with how dire the circumstances are might be very principled conservatives who've been locked out of economic opportunity that would allow for having a seat at the table to discuss these things. And that's something I think that the GOP, I think the RNC leadership, I think Fox News either doesn't know about or they don't care about. And so long as they're feeling fat and sassy, fat and sleek, what's the big deal? Yeah, I could use a little dusting, this place. It's okay. Yes, yes, the silverware could 
use a shine, use some polish, but it's not so bad. No, I'm late for the opera. Meanwhile, there are very conservative people who are very principled, who are an embarrassment. And I mean embarrassment and maybe even a threat to the RNC leadership modus operandi, to the Fox News business model. Fox News does not want to share the ball. They're a ball hog in this case by so restricting and even threatening legal action against anybody who would play more than three minutes of clips from the debate. Now, bear in mind, we're not talking three minutes of when the commentators are talking or when the debate moderators are asking their questions. We're talking three minutes of when the presidential candidates themselves are speaking. That clip I just played for you of Ben Shapiro was just shy of two minutes long. So if that had been audio from the Fox News hosted debate this week, I would have had one minute left, just one minute to play you any more of what actually transpired at the debate. That's unacceptable. No wonder a 20th as many people tuned in, according to Fox's numbers, tuned in to watch the debates on Fox News compared with how many watched Donald Trump sitting down with Tucker Carlson. And oh, by the way, no wonder Trump is so far ahead in the polls. By some accounts, he's got as much support among Republicans as the rest of the Republican field combined. And the RNC will say, oh, you can't win a general election like that. And they say that to the other candidates as well, like Ron DeSantis. He's been threatened by donors publicly. If you don't become more moderate, I'm going to stop supporting you. I'll support a rival of yours. I'll pull my funding. But do you know what? The ratings were down 50% compared with 2015 for this most recent GOP debate. 50%, cut in half, because there's a lot of other Americans, not just me, a lot of other Americans who have come to the conclusion that with Republicans like these, who needs Democrats? With conservatives so-called like these, who needs progressives? Forget what Joe Biden wants to do. Do you know what bothers me even more is... Fox News pretending to be in our corner and yanking Tucker Carlson off the air because he wanted to interview and did interview the Capitol Police chief because he was airing footage from January 6th that was given to him by Kevin McCarthy because he wanted to do some exposés that the very wealthy, powerful people at Fox News corporate didn't want him to cover and they didn't want you to know about See, the restrictions here at a certain point get to feeling like the contract that Tucker Carlson has with Fox News, where they wanted to keep him under contract and not let him have his own show somewhere else. No, 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 no. You can't do that. We'll sue. We're going to take your show away, not because your ratings are doing so poorly, but because you won't shut up when we tell you to not talk about certain things. Tucker Carlson was the most popular person on cable news. They pulled his show because he wouldn't shut up about things they don't want talked about. They don't want you and I knowing about, thinking about, discussing, analyzing, assessing. It's not because we're so stupid. Actually, they think we're quite smart enough if we had the information. They think we actually have enough judgment that we would know what to do with the information if this information were presented to us. And you know what? Here's a novel idea. If what we need is more context, 
Why is your tactic to shut Tucker Carlson down? Why is your tactic consistently in the corporate news media and in social media? Why is your tactic consistently again and again to silence conservatives instead of showing up to debate? You want to control the debate. You don't want to participate. I mean, for crying out loud, if Brett Baer and Martha McCallum were going to be so central to the debate experience for the GOP primary for the presidency, they should have just gone up there and had their own podiums right alongside the other candidates. But this is the trick. And it's a trick which, encouragingly, perhaps 50% fewer Americans are falling for now versus four years ago. That might be saying something. That might be that we're getting somewhere. It might be that they felt their oats and tried too much that they actually couldn't pull off. Maybe. On a brighter note, though, I think a brighter note. I think a happier note. (laughs) 538 and the Washington Post conducted a poll of who viewers thought won the GOP debate. It wasn't even all that close. Most concluded Ron DeSantis. 29% of the vote for Ron DeSantis. Vivek Ramaswamy, I suppose, he's fairly close at 26%. Between the two of them, just over 50% preferred Vivek Ramaswamy and Ron DeSantis. And I will say, they gave a strong performance. All of the objections I have to the way that Fox News moderated the debate, controlled the debate, broadcast the debate, all that notwithstanding, given what they had to work with, I like Ron DeSantis no less, only all the more. I feel like he could have been given more of an opportunity to shine with more time to answer questions than was afforded to any of them. Vivek Ramaswamy sounded great. I'm a little nervous because he sounds too good, actually. But wait, there's more. What's the catch? Be careful. Just saying. Nikki Haley, I can appreciate and respect a number of positions she's taken over the years. She's precisely opposite of right with regards to Disney and some other things. Mike Pence, I don't trust him anymore. I used to really like him. I don't trust Mike Pence anymore. I'm sad to say. I'm sorry to say. Now, this is interesting as well, though, regarding the stats. Trump who chose not to debate, entered the night at the top spot with 66.2% among GOP primary voters who said they would consider voting for each candidate. 66.2%, that's two-thirds. Two out of every three Republican voters went down to 61%, so six in 10 versus two out of three. It's a little bit of a slide, 5%. DeSantis entered the night at the number two spot at 63%. So actually just a little behind and he moved to number one. So more or less DeSantis and Trump switched places. DeSantis moved up from 63 to 67.5%. So he won four and a half percent of GOP primary voters over to his being a candidate they would consider voting for. Haley was the biggest mover overall, going from just 30% to 47%. I don't see how. I don't. I, that's weird to me. 
I was not impressed. She came across as too fidgety, too twitchy. And I don't think, just being honest, I don't think that we should want to have a woman as president or governor or senator or congressman. I am opposed to it on principle. It is a bad sign. It's something of an indictment on a people when none of the men are agreeable or palatable or when they push a woman to the fore. She may be a lovely woman with a brilliant mind, good character for the most part. Her instincts are wrong, exactly opposite of what they should be regarding how Ron DeSantis has engaged with Walt Disney in the state of Florida. I'm convinced that's my position. She thinks he did the wrong thing, and she publicly invited, as former governor of South Carolina, publicly invited Walt Disney to move from Florida to South Carolina, which they're not going to do. But she moved up. The poll, conducted by a Canadian-owned market research analytics company, found that 23% of voters chose Ramaswamy, 21% said DeSantis, 11% said former Vice President Mike Pence. This is a different poll commissioned by the New York Post, gauging which candidate viewers thought won. But still, you see, it's close, right? It's very, very close. DeSantis, Ramaswamy, they both had very good showings, very strong showings. And also, not coincidentally, in my view, they're both a lot younger than either Joe Biden or Donald Trump. And they're not Joe Biden or Donald Trump, which is a huge upside. That's a huge benefit to them in the minds of a lot of Americans who, quite frankly, would probably rather both men just cease to be a political force in this country. The Washington Post poll, back to that one, also measured candidates' favorable and unfavorable ratings. DeSantis ended the night having the highest overall favorable rating at 72.4%, the highest net favorable rating at 47%. Haley saw her net favorable rating shoot up 13 percentage points from 26 to 39. Ramaswamy's actually slipped nine points, going from 37 to 28. Trump's dipped from 31 to 24. Now that, 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 that is a number to watch. Trump's dipped from 31 to 24. And that's something to consider here. One, that just because people tuned in to watch the interview between Tucker and Trump, that doesn't mean that we all would love nothing more than for Trump to be the guy. He is somebody who draws eyeballs And that long form debate format and the honesty, I think, honestly, is what we are so desperately wanting. We want somebody to be honest with us and stop lying to us. We know we're being lied to. We're used to it. But that doesn't mean we like it. We hate it, as a matter of fact. We would love for somebody, even if we don't like them, to at least be honest. Be honestly unlikable. That would be better than having a kind of appeal. But... We know it's made up. We know it's fictitious. We know it's fake. Just give it to me straight, Doc. How long do I have to live? (laughs) That kind of a thing. Don't beat around the bush. No pun intended. Lastly, (laughs) and this is amusing to me, the same poll also asked Republican primary voters who did not watch the debate what they did instead. Only 7% said that they watched 
Trump's interview with Tucker Carlson, which fell behind several other options, including doing housework at 11%, watching something else on TV at 29%. A report said that approximately 15 million people actually clicked and watched the 45-minute interview for at least two seconds. That number is higher, though, than the number of people who watched the debate live, which was roughly 13 million. The nice thing about it, though, let me just say this. Depending on when that poll was conducted and whether people in the coming days go back and watch it, if they didn't watch it yet, they might have done something else that night. That doesn't mean that they won't go back and watch it later. Also, oh, by the way, if this poll is confined to Republican primary voters, but there's a whole lot of other Americans who might watch, well, we have incomplete data. That's all I'll say. For our last story, though, let's talk more specifically about the actual interview with Tucker Carlson. According to Not The Bee, Joel Abbott at Not The Bee, from yesterday, 165 million views were racked up in 10 hours. And what was I just saying, by the way? <laughs> 165 million views and counting. This is episode 19, Debate Night with Donald J. Trump, at Tucker Carlson, on X, on Twitter. They got 100 million views in just four hours, which is, going back to what I was just saying about the polling of primary voters, not to be discounted. Consider that the Super Bowl this year was watched by 115 million people. This video is two guys talking for 45 minutes in Tucker Carlson's basement. And this, oh, by the way, is exactly why I say I think the Daily Wire could host a presidential debate. I think, for that matter, the Blaze could host a presidential debate. For that matter, I think <laughs> I could host a presidential debate. Because really, all you need is for the candidates to agree to it. And you need to have people who want to hear what they would answer to the kinds of questions that are going to be asked. Consider also the 2016 Trump-Hillary debate received a record at the time of 84 million viewers, a very liberal estimation. According to Joel Abbott, is that Fox got 3.5 million viewers. Although, as I read for you from the Daily Wire with Ryan Zavedra's reporting, there's a number of 13 million that's out there as well. Which is correct? I don't know. But neither 3.5 nor 13 million, or if you split the difference, neither nor all three combined would hold a candle to 80 million views on X, 100 million views, 165 million views and counting. I'll play for you because I can, and there's no time limit, like three minutes or else I'll be sued by Fox News. I'll play for you some of the highlights as posted to Twitter by Benny Johnson from this interview with former President Donald Trump. Here's the first. Cut three. Take a listen. So back to Biden, I'm interested. So you think he's failing. He obviously is failing. I think it's clear to everybody. But that would make Kamala Harris the candidate? Well, not really. I mean, I guess they'd have uh, maybe a free-for-all. A lot of people say she has to remain for certain reasons, the candidate. She has to. 
I don't think that's true, actually. I don't think that other people would stand for it. Uh, she has some bad moments. Her moments are almost as bad as his. I think his are worse, actually. Yeah. But she seems pretty senile, too. She speaks in, uh, in rhyme. In, uh, it's weird. It's weird. But she has bad moments. And in rhyme? What do you... Well, the way she talks, the bus will go here, and then the bus will go there, because that's what buses do. And it's weird. The whole thing is weird. This is not a president of the United States future. And uh, I think they probably have some kind of a primary, and other people will get involved. I mean, Newsom, right? I could mean, that's... be. Could be. I mean, you know, I always got along well with him, believe it or not. But could be him. Could be somebody else. He's got a big... A big load on his shoulders because you look at California, what's happened. But I don't know if the American people really, the people that vote for him, I don't even know if they care. You know, you look at so many of the things that are going on and people don't seem to be, in the old days, if you had a bad record, it meant a lot. Today, if you have a bad record, it doesn't really mean anything. You know, he looks good. He's a nice looking guy, speaks well. But Biden, every time you watch him talking, it's like he's walking on eggs. You're waiting for him to collapse. And he almost always does. And here is cut four from the same interview. But Joe is really... But you don't think he's going to make it to November of 20? Well, I I think he's worse uh, mentally than he is physically. And physically, he's not exactly uh, a triathlete or any kind of an athlete. You look at him, he can't walk to the helicopter. He, He walks... He can't lift his feet out of the grass. You know, it's only two inches at the White House, right? It's not a lot. But you watch him, and it looks like he's walking on toothpicks. So, and then you see him in the beach where he can't lift a chair. You know, those chairs are meant to be light, right? They're like two ounces. Yeah. You lift them up. He can't lift the chair. He can't walk to the chair. And I, I don't know what they're doing with the beach. You know, this beach is seeming to play a big role. But they love pictures of him on the beach. I think he looks terrible on the beach. He looks terrible on the Skinny beach. Skinny legs. Well, he can't walk through the sand. You know, sand is not that easy to walk through. But when he walks through it, he can't walk through the sand. And there's somebody in there that thinks he looks fabulous at the beach. I think he looks horrible at the beach. Plus, the beach doesn't represent what a president's supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be working. You're supposed to be getting us out of that horrible, horrible war that we're very much involved in with Russia and Ukraine. You could do that. You could do that very easily. I believe you could do that very... I don't believe he could do it because he's just incompetent. But that's a war that should end immediately, not because of one side or the other, because hundreds of thousands of people are being killed. Can you imagine you're in an apartment house and rockets are going into that building and blowing it up and knocking it down? And who, who can, why, why should anything, why should anybody, human beings, these are human, whether they're Russian or Ukrainian or whatever they are, it's got to be stopped, and it can't be stopped very easily. It would have never started. If I were president, it would have never started. And lastly, cut five from the interview with Tucker on X. When I fired Comey, it was like throwing a rock into a hornet's nest, into a nest of bees, and the place went crazy. So do, when you were president, do you, are you confident that you knew everything, say, CIA was doing? No, I'm not. I'm not. It's uh, it's a very interesting group of people. I had very good relationships, I thought. But I was a little surprised uh, when I got out uh, that, you know, things go on. Look, it's... Uh, what were you surprised by? Uh, I, I was surprised. I think at some of the people. I was surprised that there was... Uh, I had a group of people. Look, we killed many 
using the CIA, I have to say this, bad, very bad actors. We were very good at it. Uh, you look at Soleimani, you look at al-Baghdadi, bigger than Osama bin Laden. I mean, Osama bin Laden, is, but al-Baghdadi did ISIS, and he was rebuilding ISIS very strongly. And that was the CIA and, that did that? Uh, that was really us that did that. Yeah. That was really us that did that. And Soleimani was us that did that, not so much CIA. But we did some very good work with the CIA. But I started, you know, when I looked at the 51 intelligence agents uh, saying that that was the laptop from hell was Russia disinformation, when I took a look at that, I said, that's a horrible thing. They knew it wasn't. They knew it was not. And that's enough. That's four minutes from different places, different parts of the interview. I would recommend watching the whole thing. I would. If only because this guy is the former president of the United States of America. This is a historic time for our country. We need to be aware of what his positions are on things. You might think, oh, I know well enough what his positions are on things. But I think it's important for us to know what this guy, who was president and is running again and is the front runner for the Republican nomination, sounds like in the midst of combating several prosecutions against him to try and knock him out of the race, to prevent him from campaigning, to prevent him from focusing on talking to the American people who would actually vote for him. The prosecutors who are going after him don't want to leave it up to you and me to decide whether we would have him be president again. They don't want us to decide because they're afraid that we would decide to make him president again. I think it's good for us to hear what Trump sounds like in the midst of trying to campaign on the one hand and also deal effectively with politically motivated prosecutions. And that's what they are against him. Now, I can have my disagreements with certain things he has said and done over the years. I still think he did arguably the best job as president compared with anybody in my lifetime. Now, Reagan was president for a little bit when I was very, very young. But it's arguable that Trump did an even more heroic job in a lot of ways compared to Ronald Reagan. Not because Ronald Reagan wasn't a quality president. I think he was a very good president. But I don't think that this bureaucratic deep state apparatus and the corporate news media were quite as aggressive then as they are now. I know they didn't like him. I know they tried to run interference between his decisions and what actually was going to happen, but nothing at the scale of Donald Trump, nothing at the scale of unleashing COVID. And I'm convinced that this is what it is. And I could be wrong, but if I'm wrong, I'm being honestly wrong. I think COVID was engineered in a lab to stop Trump from winning re-election. I think that the powers that be, the central bankers, the establishment politicians of both of the chief political parties in the U.S., the deep state, the corporate news media, academia filled with radical leftists, all of the above and more besides, were terrified that Trump would be reelected in 2020, and so they unleashed COVID on the world. That's what 
Trump was up against. And by contrast, Reagan, yes, was able to tell Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And the Soviet Union collapsed. And that wasn't the minor thing. But right now, what we're dealing with is arguably more dangerous than Soviet Russia ever was. The Chinese Communist Party, let me say that again, is arguably more dangerous than the Soviet Union ever was. And for a simple proof of that, look no farther than the unleashing of COVID from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the shutdown of the global economy, civil liberties being suspended, your right to even go to work or send your kids to school or go to church, go to family functions, even go to the park in many places, evaporated overnight. You became public enemy number one if you refused to social distance, wear a mask, and in some places, get vaccinated. You became the principal villain in the world. And what's so pernicious about that is the people who actually facilitated you being villainized for doing the basic things, which for all of human history have been entirely normal and non-controversial. That's what Trump was up against, what was unleashed in 2020 in the way of COVID and the lockdowns and censorship on social media with the enlistment of the deep state and establishment politicians of both parties and the corporate news media and academia and the teachers unions. That's what Trump was up against the moment he came down the escalators at Trump Tower, announcing that he was running in the first place for his first term. I watched the full interview between him and Tucker Carlson, and I thought, I feel very sorry for him, and I feel very sorry for people close to him who've been targeted consistently because some people just want to see the world burn, and these guys were trying to put out the fires. I feel very sorry for voters and supporters of former President Donald Trump who have been harassed, who've been hated on, who've been unfriended, who have lost all contact with family members. And why? Because the corporate news media told you day in, day out, all day long, every day for years on end that you needed to hate this guy. And if anybody had a good word to say about him, or supported him, or voted for him, you should hate them too. It's an evil thing. It's not just politics. You know, politics is the process of making decisions together. That's what politics is. No, no, it's not politics what the left has been endeavoring to do. It's evil. What decisions are we making together when they will destroy your life if you run for office and look like you're going to win the election. That's not making decisions together. And they say again and again that Trump and Trump supporters are a threat to our democracy. That's the line. That's been cooked up in a lab as well, right alongside COVID. It's the wrong kind of virus. It's gone viral. It's the wrong kind of virus. When Ben Franklin was asked while exiting the Constitutional Convention, what kind of government have you given us? His answer was a republic, madam, if you can keep it, which is to say republics depend on respect for the rule of law. They depend on a certain set of shared 
morals, and virtues held in high esteem by all. We no longer have the consent of the losers. And that's not because Trump questioned the results of the 2020 election. Think back to Al Gore when he lost to George W. Bush. Think back to John Kerry when he lost to George W. Bush. Think back to Hillary Clinton when she lost to Donald Trump. Democrats have been questioning elections for over a quarter of a century. They question the results of elections whenever they don't win. But if the other side questions, what we're seeing right now with Trump is that's a crime. When they do it, it's their civic duty. When we do it, it's insurrection, it's sedition, it's treason. That's not the process of making decisions together. That's not politics. That's enmity. That's hatred. They hate us. He was right. Another thing Trump was right about. He was right when he said that all these people were coming for him because he was standing between us and them. The example that they want to make of him is supposed to provide a chilling effect for anyone and everyone else who would ever dare to challenge this status quo, this new normal. The new normal is building up to you will own nothing and be happy. This whole Great Reset business is communism. It's global communism combined with unprecedented technology, which allows for monitoring your every move, your every thought, feeling, belief, inclination, and then doing predictive analytics based on your past behavior, what you are likely to do in the future. That's what Meta has been collecting on all of us via Facebook and Instagram for years now. That's what Twitter before Elon Musk bought it, was endeavoring to do as well. That's what Google is doing. All of this data, when it's in the hands of the Chinese Communist Party, is far more dangerous to you and I than the Soviet Union with all their nukes, all their tough talk, all their proxy wars ever were. Because you don't even know that you're being played when you're being played. And here's the irony. They can call... Russian disinformation, what is objectively true. And when you press, if you're able to keep speaking, if they'll answer you at all, when you press, they're less careful, more honest spokespeople and thought leaders will say something can be true and still be misinformation. Why? Because it doesn't lead to the outcome that they want. They don't care about truth. They don't care about goodness. They don't care about beauty. And that's why we see so much ugliness being championed. Remember a few years ago, I think it was two years ago, the Super Bowl, I commented that it was a remarkable thing how many ugly people were in commercials. It was an unusual number of ugly people. Like, ugly is the new normal. Like, that's who they think you will feel most comfortable with. Or, like, the intent is to demoralize you by presenting you with Ugly people, whereas you were used to growing up, the most beautiful people selling products. But now that's sexist. Now they've got to prove that they're not sexually exploiting anybody by presenting the most unsexy people. You couldn't possibly be attracted to, enticed by, lust after. But it's not just a pendulum swing because the market research says people are over sex selling products and services. No, no. There's more to it than that. They 
have grown to despise beauty if they're not beautiful anymore. They've grown to hate truth if the truth stands between them and getting what they want. They've grown to hate objective goodness because they've convinced themselves that the only way they'll ever be liberated is to do as much evil as much of the time and force you to affirm it and endorse it, or at least to stand back. Don't you dare interfere or we'll do worse to you. Who appointed you to be a judge over us? What's so rich and hypocritical about it as well is the headline, when Trump goes into Fulton County, Georgia, to get his mugshot taken, to post $200,000 bail, the headline reads, Trump surrenders to authorities in Georgia. What's that? That's, you need to know who's boss too. Even when he was president, they didn't talk about him or treat him as one in authority to respect. And oh, by the way, for the folks out there who went uncritically along with the whole charade of 2020 and the mandates and the lockdowns, you will mask up, you will social distance, you will not meet with other people for church, for family gatherings, for birthdays, funerals, weddings, any of it. For those who said you must, you have to unquestioningly abide by these mandates and these lockdowns, what they either didn't realize or they refused to admit was that insofar as all of that was actually part of a larger scheme to overthrow a duly elected president while he was in office and to keep him from being reelected, which he would have been based on our laws, based on our institutions operating as they should, as they were intended to, as they were legislated to, that was an insurrection. That was a coup. What happened in 2020 globally was a coup. And so it's rich to hear some very stuffy and superficial moralizers say that if you or I didn't abide by the mandates or if we questioned what was going on with 2020 and the elections or January 6th, we were the ones subverting the rule of law and not submitting to the authorities. What's rich about that is by affirming all that and refusing to question it, refusing to comment on it, refusing to engage in the public discourse as is our right and you might even say duty, our obligation as Americans, as Christians, what we were actually being told to do was participate in the coup, or at least don't you dare interfere. Don't you dare interfere. When Trump was the authority, these unelected bureaucrats and intelligence agents did not respect him, did not submit themselves to his authority. By extension, they didn't submit themselves to the authority of the American people or to the U.S. Constitution. And yet, currently running for the GOP nomination in the 2024 presidential race, candidates are, with a straight face, getting up on the debate stage at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library, and they have the audacity, they have the gall to say, Trump talked about suspending the Constitution. No, wait, 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 wait. That's been what's been happening. That, that's what it's been. With the Democrats and the establishment leadership, the entrenched bureaucracy of both political parties, the uniparty really, red team, blue team, at the top, they're all just the green team. Whatever makes them the most money, keeps them in power. 
And they use that money in turn to control anybody with a conscience, anybody with conviction, anybody with their own mind. It's a corrupt political machine. And oh, by the way, The Battle for Athens, Tennessee, you should read that book, The Fighting Bunch by Chris DeRose, The Battle of Athens and How World War II Veterans Won the Only Successful Armed Rebellion Since the Revolution. Was it an armed rebellion, though, when a corrupt political machine, Democrats in the state of Tennessee, it's not a recent thing that there are problems with Democrats in Tennessee. I'm not the only one who's had trouble with Democrats from Tennessee. See also my perpetual indefinite Twitter suspension for talking back to one. But these were returning World War II veterans who were watching their friends and their family, their fellow citizens, harassed, beaten up, roughed up, bullied, threatened. Their candidate was just about to be murdered on election day. The fraud was happening in real time. They fought. They won. The Democrats in 2020 did exactly what the Democrats in Athens, Tennessee were doing in McMinn County, Tennessee. They were doing the exact same thing, but scaled up. COVID was straight out of the Alinsky playbook. Create an issue, polarize the issue, freeze the issue. It doesn't really matter which side you take control over. Now everybody's so busy fighting amongst themselves. You just offer to lead the side that believes you and agrees with you that X, Y, or Z is an existential crisis that they need to fight against the other side about. You will offer yourself as their advocate, and then you push through whatever communistic nonsense you can. Ask for the sun, the moon, and the stars. If they give you anything, take it and come back again tomorrow. And just do that again and again. That's a hundred years of Democrat policy and politics, but it's not really politics. It's a racket. It's corrupt. It's dirty. Trump was standing up against that. He's still standing up against it. I don't think he's the best candidate. I don't. I didn't think he was in 2016 either. He surprised me from 2016 to 2020. That doesn't mean he did a perfect job. He didn't bat a thousand, but he surprised me. He was a very competent president. He did a very good job. He's not my favorite right now among the Republicans who are running. I prefer DeSantis. I wish Trump would just knock it off on calling him Meatball Ron and Ron the Sanctimonious, various other things. If Trump has dirt on DeSantis, he needs to just present it already and let us make a determination. If he doesn't have dis- if he if he doesn't have dirt on DeSantis, then he needs to just knock it off and let again the American people decide. Because this is not politics. We're not making decisions together when all you're doing is ad hominem attacks. But then as much as I would say that about Trump with regards to DeSantis, it's like he says in the interview, you know, it used to be people cared about that kind of stuff. People don't seem to care about if you've got a messy backstory anymore. And that's unfortunate. That's really what tells me that we are in a crisis. But on that note, I'll play for you one last clip from the Trump interview with Tucker And this one has to do with a question about, are we headed for civil war? Here it is. Cut six. Take a listen. Do you think we're moving towards civil war? There's tremendous passion and there's tremendous love 
you know, January 6th was a very interesting day because they don't report it properly. Uh, I believe it was the largest crowd I've ever spoken before. And you know some of the crowds I've spoken before. And uh, like July 4th on the mall, uh, I think they had a million people there. Uh, but I think that the biggest crowd I've ever spoken before was on January 6th. And people that were in that crowd, a very, very small group of people, and we said, patriotically and peacefully, peacefully and patriotically, right? Nobody ever says that. Go peacefully and patriotically. But people that were in that crowd that day, very small group of people went down there, and then you, there are a lot, of, a lot of scenarios that we can talk about. But people in that crowd said it was the most beautiful day they've ever experienced. There was love in that crowd. There was love and unity. I have never seen such spirit and such passion and such love. And I've also never seen simultaneously and from the same people such hatred of what they've done to our country. So do you think it's possible that there's open conflict? We seem to be moving I, I towards don't something. Know. I don't know because I don't know what it, you know, I, I can say this. Uh, there's a level of passion that I've never seen. There's a level of hatred that I've never seen. And that's probably a bad combination. And that right there is a fact. That is a bad combination. Here's the thing I came to appreciate and realize on a deeper level from David Grossman's book. The rhetoric, the bluff, the bluster in the animal kingdom and also between people typically is employed in threat displays to deter aggression from the other side. Typically, with threat displays, what you get is two opponents sizing each other up and deciding before they fought, hopefully instead of fighting, who would win. And one of them recognizes that the other is bigger and says, okay, you win. And they saunter off. And that's that, right? They get the territory, they get the mate, they get the food, they get the whatever it is, but the threat display might be defensive or offensive. They come in both varieties. As soon as there is the potential for conflict, the threat display comes into effect to convince the other side that it's not worth it. It's not worth fighting. Let's just handle this by sizing each other up. Rhetorically, when Hyperbolic language ceases to capture the emotion of the moment, and it ceases to persuade the other side to just let it go, saunter off, leave it be. Typically, what follows after that is an actual fight. If you don't find some way to de-escalate, what you will get is a procession from threat display to actual violence, actual fighting. And that's another question that's not included in these clips that I played for you. Tucker asks Trump, based on what they've thrown at you so far over the years and what they're trying to do right now with the prosecutions, there's a level of escalation here. Do you worry at all that they're going to try to kill you? He went there. He asked the question just point blank like that. And the answer wasn't no. And of course, you and I recognize that the answer should not be no. The answer is yes. If 
a whole lot of people on the left who've been conditioned and brainwashed into hating Trump with a passion, hating Trump more than they love life itself. If they had a chance, they would absolutely take one for the team and take him out. And they would believe that they were dying a martyr's death. They would they were taking one for the team and being heroic. That's how they would look at it, even if they died while taking him out. That's how much the corporate news media, social media, the establishment of both parties have ratcheted up the rhetoric regarding Trump. Now they can say he's ratcheting up the rhetoric. He's the one who's calling for violence. I listened to the speech. I listened to what it is that he said to the crowd on January 6th. I read the tweets before he was removed from Twitter. He said it repeatedly again and again, remain peaceful. They didn't want things to remain peaceful. The bureaucratic deep state didn't want things to remain peaceful. The corporate news media didn't want that. The establishment of both political parties didn't want that. The globalists didn't want that. The CCP didn't want that. They wanted exactly what they got, and it was made for TV. It was orchestrated so as to give the most dramatic optics and therefore the most comprehensive pretext for going after political opponents, not just Trump, but everybody that would vote for and support him and insist that his vision of America is their vision too. He was articulating how they see this country and what they want for this country, not just for themselves, but for their children and their grandchildren. What you have to realize is that the same people who can talk themselves into removing Trump by violence very easily, that's their emergency last resort plan in all likelihood. The same folks who can talk themselves into that being justified for the greater good, if they do it, will in all probability ignite a second civil war in this country. And they will have already decided, so be it. And they may want that because they've convinced themselves not just to hate Trump, but to hate people who like Trump. There are a lot of Americans who hate Trump, and there are a lot of Americans who love him, and they will always love him. And whatever happens to Trump, whether he's elected, whether he's not elected, the Americans that love Trump and the Americans that hate Trump, if they can't learn to live together or stay away from each other after some form or fashion, they're going to fight. And the threat displays, those have been going on for years, but at a certain point, when they don't deter and the other side isn't backing down, and this is true for both sides, you should be braced for impact. You should be braced for a collision course. I would love to see us avoid that. In fact, that's part of the reason why we're launching this Ecclesia Forum in the first place. Because if we don't learn how to sit down and have conversations together and decide things together reasonably and listen to each other without surrendering our commitment to what is true and what is good and what is beautiful, if we don't regain that ability, we're headed for civil war. We're headed for a bloody and destructive conflict, the likes of which most of us can't even imagine. I would ask you to pray for the Ecclesia Forum, and I would ask you to consider participating in it if you're in this area. But even more than that, even more crucially, more vitally, I would encourage you to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, 
For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. I would encourage you to let your reasonableness be evident to all. I would encourage you to study to show yourself an approved workman who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I would encourage you to aspire to live a quiet life, working with your hands, minding your own affairs so that you can walk properly before outsiders, so that you can be dependent on no one. That's a great aspiration. It's a very biblical, a very Christian aspiration. Being dependent on no one, but being dependable, bearing one another's burdens, not seeking only your own interests, but also looking for how you can advance the interests of others. I would encourage you to seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. I would encourage you, young men who are unmarried, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. I would encourage you, young couples, children are a heritage from Yahweh. The fruit of the womb is a blessing. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He will not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. I would encourage you, children, Don't underestimate the impact to your parents when you respect your father, when you listen to your mother's teaching, when you listen to your father's instruction, they will give you grace and honor. I would encourage you, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands in everything as unto the Lord. I would encourage all of the above to see everything that I just mentioned, which is straight from scripture every one of those biblical admonitions and encouragements to see those as profoundly relevant to our current social and political problems. Because here's what happens when you do those things and you are blameless, when men speak all manner of evil against you for Christ's namesake, they're the ones who are going to be left with egg on their face. They may hate you. In fact, they will hate you. They may say all kinds of evil things about you. In fact, they will say all manner of evil against you if you're pursuing righteousness, if you're seeking first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. But guess what? All these things will be added unto you. Your father in heaven knows you need these things. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. Don't be anxious for anything. Be very strong and very courageous, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, present your requests with thanksgiving to God and rest in God's provision, his protection, his providence, Seek peace and pursue it as much as depends on you. Live peaceably with all men. But no, it is not possible. It is not entirely up to you. You cannot guarantee peace with people, particularly those who love darkness, those who are foolish or wise in their own eyes, which is worse. But ask God for wisdom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and in due time, he will raise you up. He will honor you. Let God honor you. Let other people honor you. But beware when all men speak well of you, for so their fathers spoke well of the false prophets. Beware of false teaching. Beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. The same event happens to them both. The righteous man and the wicked, the poor man and the rich, the wise man and the fool. And yet, God calls us to be holy, for he is holy. All of this is entirely relevant to where we find ourselves right now in the United States of America, in the world, in the year 2023, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. 
All of this is terribly pertinent, terribly relevant. Nothing could be more pertinent to where we find ourselves politically. And oh, by the way, if you find that you have some wisdom to share with someone who is not a fool or wise in their own eyes, if you can correct the fool, lest he become wise in his own eyes and truly hopeless, and if he hates you for it, your blamelessness will at least, at a minimum, give him and others pause and it testifies to God's goodness. That's what is known as a theodicy, testifying to God's goodness. Our lives should testify to God's goodness. Don't be hearers of the word only and so deceive yourselves. Be doers of the word also. Let your light so shine before all men, not that they can see your good works and glorify you, but that they would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. God's pleased by that. In fact, he prepared good works for you to walk in from before the foundations of the world. And in Christ, you have everything that you need for life and godliness. God is able to do exceedingly more than we can ask or imagine. With God, all things are possible. Don't grow weary in doing what is good. Persevere. Press on. If you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Anybody can suffer for wickedness. Don't be wicked. Your soul is not for sale. It shouldn't be. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? You won't be able to buy it back. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.